0: Oh, and welcome to Hospice Insights, the law and beyond, where we connect you to what matters in the ever-changing world of hospice and palliative care. How one hospice owner got convicted of healthcare fraud and how you can avoid that fate. Jonathan Porter, Hi, my, my wonderful colleague. So we're here to talk about You know, something that didn't go so well for for one hospice um, and sort of lessons learned from this. So maybe to kick off this case, can you and we can link to to the case in the um, podcast notes. So if people want this reading before they go to bed at night, they can do that. But, you know, tell us what this case is and what it's about and and whatnot.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Meg. Um, Good to be back with you. Uh, so let me first give a caveat. I was not uh, involved in this trial in in any way. Uh, I'm working off of um, the publicly available docket uh, plus media reports. Uh, so I'm I'm doing my best here, but um, but but this is this is essentially a case uh, about a uh, a doctor in New Orleans named uh, Dr. Shiva Akula. Dr. Akula is an infectious disease specialist but he on the side owned this hospice in new orleans he wasn't the medical director um wasn't certifying patients he was um you know he's doing his thing as an internal as an infectious disease specialist and then owned a hospice on the on the side um, so he was indicted, and we can talk about uh, what, how the, the steps that that led up to his indictment. But he was indicted for healthcare fraud. You know, a lot of uh, federal indictments these days they've got a lot of legal theories. Um, it's it's sort of typical in a healthcare case that you'll see not just healthcare fraud, but also conspiracy counts um, and kickback statute violations, false statements. Sometimes you'll see aggravated identity theft. But here, this was very <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's, that's, that's modern Uh,
0: identity theft. I won't go down that rabbit hole. Like what is that? But okay.
1: That's, that can be a follow-up, (laughs) follow-up podcast. Uh, The people will, will be emailing, requesting that follow-up for sure. No, (laughs) Um, but here, this is, this was a simple one, just healthcare fraud, but it's a, the, the losses here are large for for a hospice. Uh, $62 million billed, $47 million paid in what the what the government claims is fraudulent conduct. There were several theories of wrongdoing. The main one that we should focus on is that Dr. Akula was essentially accused of having the hospice auto-enroll patients in GIP or general inpatient care. People who just didn't need GIP for at least according to um at least according to the government. What the what the Justice Department says general inpatient care is, and they spent a lot of time explaining this and how it relate how general inpatient care relates to respite care in the hospice setting. The, the Justice Department said that general inpatient care should rarely be used by hospices, and really only when there's you know pain control or symptom management mm-hmm. issues that can't be provided in anything but inpatient care. And DOJ is careful to contrast that with respite care, which it says is for the you know the occasional relief of family members who are caring for a, a patient at home over a long period of time, they just need a break. But the big distinction that the Justice Department draws between those two uh is that um is that Medicare reimburses very differently for those two. So the Justice Department says that during the time Dr. Akula was pushing general inpatient uh, care, Medicare was paying around $170 per day for respite care, but over $700 per day for general inpatient care. And according to the Justice Department, that's why Dr. Akula was enrolling patients in Mm -hmm. general inpatient care. It was to essentially like 4x his Medicare payments. Yeah. now now, Meg, that's DOj's allegations of yeah. how general inpatient care works and and uh, you know to be honest, that makes sense to me. It's you mm-hmm. know, it should be rare because you think about patients being wanting to you know they want to be at home as they're going through that process and and everything. but I'm curious what what's your experience with general inpatient care? How do you advise clients when it comes to when it when it comes to that?
0: Yeah, well, I think that that it is rare and there's actually you know, a cap for overall general inpatient care. It's like no more than, I think, 20% of your days can be GIP. No one in my nearly 25 years have I ever heard have gone over the GIP cap. Um, and I think if you were going over the GIP cap, which I wonder, like, you know, given this was probably a pretty small program and that's a lot of GIP billing, like, I, I wonder if there is a GIP cap issue there. But, um, you know, it is rare. I, I, well, I, should, I guess I wouldn't say rare. I think that it's possible that people may need that care. I think there's a a lot of push-pull right now with the government. The OIG is doing a big um, GIP audit. There's a lot of TPE going on for GIP. And I think that there... This is not in the false claim context, but some level of disconnect between what the government thinks qualifies for GIP and what hospices think covers GIP and what the regulations say, because sometimes when you deal with medical review of GIP, it's sort of like, oh, today's Monday, they would be eligible for GIP, and then they're not eligible Tuesday, but then they're uh, eligible Wednesday, and it's like, no, that's not you know, how this would work because, you know, usually people, it, it could be a step down from a hospital or, you know, they're, they're having it, um, you know, you're trying other things in the home that just aren't getting those symptoms under control. You're not going to send someone back home if there are symptoms, okay. You're not screaming out in pain for an hour. I'm not gonna like send you home hour two, right? Like you're gonna you gotta see if that holds and stuff. And so I think there's there's real tension about how that looks. And then I mean, we've used this case on a number of occasions in advocacy, like people denying GIP when someone is vomiting feces. Like that's not a normal occurrence. So like you think the family could handle that at home? So I think what is unfortunate is there's a lot of, I think, valid GIP going on that is getting denied. And then you have someone like this where it's like, you know, <laughs> this person's so off the rails. Why is everyone getting, you know, all this scrutiny And they're not doing, you know, this, and you know, I I think that that is always. People listening to this will be like, oh, this clearly it wasn't a good idea what this guy was doing, and I'm not doing that. Why do I keep getting, you know, this kind of scrutiny? And you know, for this hospice, it sounds like this was going on for a long period of time, you know, and it's like I think everyone's like, go have at it, government. Like, go get those folks. but anyway, it's, I, I think, interesting when you look at these cases, um, you know, the claims we're talking about, this is 2014, right? Some of this stuff, I mean, this stuff is old or old. I mean, and, and when you think about hospice, like, that feels like <laughs> ancient history, ancient, ancient, you know. Um, and so, but, but, I, you know, so I think most people will be like, yeah, that seems really weird. That, you know so many people would be on GIP and it, it seems like the government really feels like this was respite level of care like there was maybe relief of the family, but it, it was relief of the family from more custodial care than actually acute acute skilled care that was needed. but but anyway so so this goes to trial. Um, Jonathan, so this wasn't a settlement case. Right, this Correct. went to trial, Correct. so which you know, oftentimes things are settled. So that's a little bit. Are were you surprised that this? You know, because you and maybe for our listeners who forgot, you were at DOJ for quite some time and did healthcare cases, and so mm-hmm. you have sort of a unique insight because it's not like. How how many of your cases really went to trial? I mean, trials such a rare thing in litigation, right?
1: Yeah, tri- trials are, are definitely rare. Um, you know, the, the the Justice Department has a really high percentage of of winning cases that that they indict, um, and and so yeah, the the vast majority of criminal cases are going to plead out, the, and even more than that, and on the False Claims Act side, for a, a lot of reasons, those are going to resolve prior to trial. So the, these trials are are actually very very rare.
0: And so, was this a criminal case, Jonathan?
1: Yes, yes. Okay. This was a yeah. This was a a criminal conviction um, above and beyond. It was so there was al- also a False Claims Act ketam, which we can talk about. Um, but in addition to the ketam, this was a this was a criminal case. Doctor Kula was uh, was indicted.
0: So. There was a third party whistleblower, which is what got the government in the door to begin with, because they so the government didn't flag this on their own. It was the whistleblower that brought this.
1: Yeah, that that, that's exactly that's exactly it. So there's actually this case has really interesting history that we could probably learn a lot from. So there's a routine audit back in 2014 um, that the, you know, the the MAC did. And and there was a 100 percent failure rate for this hospice. After that 100% failure rate, apparently, Dr. Kula just kept doing what he was doing, uh, exactly what, what the audit failed him for. He just kept doing the exact same thing, according to the Justice Department. And then a, f- a few years after that, he one of his employees filed a key TAM. So the way key TAMs wor- work, Meg, and, and and you know this, but some of our listeners may not, um, key TAMs are filed under seal in federal court. No one knows about the existence of that KETAM except the, the court, the, um, the the person who filed it, um, and the Justice Department. Now, the Justice Department then investigates for however long they want to investigate for or however long the courts will let them investigate, and then they'll make a decision whether to take the case or not take the case. So in this particular case, the KETAM was filed seven years ago, um, and for four years, uh Dr. Akula had no idea that the whistle that the that the that the key tab had been filed. For four years, the whistleblower continues to work for the hospice. Wow. In those, in those four years, she took documents. FBI had her make re- recorded phone calls to Dr. Akula, and at one point it appears she even, you know, shook Dr. Akula down for some money. Um, just bizarre, uh, bizarre wow. facts here. But the FBI investigation took a really long time, and Dr. Akula was actually finally indicted in 2021 uh, for, for these for these charges.
0: Holy cats! So, and maybe this isn't something you know, but like, is that, I guess when we've dealt with whistleblowers, oftentimes it's like a former employee or something. I mean, because the thing that might be rattling people hearing this, like getting anxious, like you're always being recorded by your employees. (laughs) But is that common when someone files a key tam? that then they are then cooperating with the government? Like, I guess, where's the line there that like you're now an informant. So you like, I'm thinking, again, TV show here, like I'm wearing a wire. Like, is that like, if I file a whistleblower, am I required to do these things the government wants? Or am I sort of a willing, like, oh, I could or could not? I mean,
1: yeah, good, good question. It it, it depends. It largely depends. So whistleblowers are Tremendously incentivized to do what the government wants them to do. Um, You know, they – most whistleblowers, when they're filing a key tam, they want the government to take the case. Their cases are always going to be stronger when it's the government saying, that person over there committed fraud, rather than if the government says, ah, we really don't like this case – and it's you know a private attorney saying that that there's fraud. It's always stronger when the government is, is is making the the argument that there's fraud. So they they want to be all you know ten times out of ten the whistleblower wants to be really cooperative with the government. If the government wants them to make recorded recorded phone calls, they're going to make recorded phone calls. If they if the government wants them to go in and take documents, which is a different issue, um, and is. A lot more complex. It's a longer conversation. But, you know, they're going to go do what the government tells them to do. They're going to go take the documents. They're going to make recorded phone calls. They're going to do whatever they can to make that case good, because they know at the end of this, if you settle for a million dollars, you're going to get, you know, six figures out of it for sure. And, And so they're they're wanting to be helpful. They're wanting the case to go well.
0: Wow, this is like a movie, Jonathan. I'm just thinking about
1: we could turn this into a screenplay. Meg. Yeah, exactly. Be by, ah. by dozens of people. Yeah.
0: Yes. <laughs> In my retirement, I'll start. Yeah, my all the crazy stories that went on. So, okay. Obviously, they're building a very, very strong case. And, and maybe one side note too, since this is a criminal case, you know, and the whistleblower's interest is at least maybe partly money here. I mean, obviously, he's going to jail, right? Um, But is there money to collect here? I mean, is I mean, obviously, we want bad actors out of the program. And now he's going to jail. Like, is it hard to recoup that? Because how much is the repayment back?
1: Yeah, that and that's actually uh, so I glanced right before we recorded this, I glanced at the at the docket and and there's they're apparently the government and Dr. Akula are fighting over over money. Okay. the government's worried that uh that Dr Akula is is uh is moving assets which you're not supposed to do once you've been indicted that's usually part of the some standard conditions of, of release on bond is that you you tell the government before you're going to move move funds yeah. around um and so there, yeah the the, the the big question here is how much money is left a lot of times in, in these cases the lawyers uh get a, yeah. a decent chunk of a decent chunk of change. Sometimes there's not a lot of money left over. Um, so, yeah, that, that that largely depends on on what the defendant's financial situation is. But, yeah, that's that's usually a factor is is there going to be money left over?
0: So the whistleblower, even if they could get whatever, 30 percent, there might not be 30% of zero is zero.
1: Yeah, so. you can get a really nice judgment. I I I guess that you'll never that you'll never collect on. It'll be yeah. very impressive. You could get a yeah. big fake check uh to yourself, <laughs> but but you yeah, you won't actually collect anything if there's no money left over.
0: Okay. So so all of those recorded phone calls and blah, blah, blah. Okay. Wow. What what um what a story here. So Obviously, there's no settlement, which seems sort of strange if you have recorded phone calls and all these other things, but okay, so no settlement, you're going to trial. So what what do they have to prove at trial since this is a criminal healthcare fraud case?
1: Yeah. So most of our cases, Meg, in the hospice um, industry are civil under the False Claims Act. Yes. You know, civil cases have a really low burden. It's it's what's called a preponderance of the evidence. It's, it's essentially 50 percent plus one little little bit, just a little bit more than 50 percent. The criminal burden is amazingly uh, you know, high. It's it's beyond a reasonable doubt. You have to show with with a fraud count. You have to show intent to defraud. You have to show willfulness. Um, so you know Dr Nakula was his jury was instructed that to convict him. they had to find beyond a reasonable doubt that he had like this bad purpose, this intent to actually cause harm to Medicare and 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 the big thing is a mere misunderstanding of you know the technical points of a Cpt code that's it's really not enough to show bad intent and the way DOJ went about, clearing that really high bar at trial was a lot was mainly through uh, witnesses. So they had a bunch of Dr. Kula's former employees testify against him. One witness was a medical director who testified that he had charted that patients were stable, but then someone else went in and changed the charts to distressed. And I guess that was to support inpatient um, services. Um, so that was a, you know. That's don't, if you're a hospice <laughs> listening, don't go in and change your medical director's uh, charts to, to support fraud. Um, another witness was a former employee who testified that she told Dr. Akula directly that they were treating patients who didn't qualify for hospice. You had the whistleblower herself, the one who filed the key tam, she testified against Dr. Akula. And then the hospice administrator testified and was probably one of the key witnesses the, against uh, Dr. Akula. The media, I read some media reports on this that said that the administrator previously pled guilty to a felony. I couldn't find that anywhere, but apparently what she pled to was that she changed patients' charts to qualify for them to for, for GIP. And that's what she pled to. But you know, fascinatingly, she wasn't willing to testify that Dr. Akula instructed her to change charts. It was a really complicated story, it sounds like not very, not very clear. Uh, sort of like an indirect pressure thing. But, you know, based on court filings and media reports, I'm actually a little underwhelmed with the government's evidence against Dr. Akula. The The case appears to be that one, Dr. Akula had direct control over billing. That's that's important um, Two, the audit where the hospice 100 percent failed that that put Dr. Kula in noticed that the billing was wrong. Three, Dr. Akula signed that standard Medicare enrollment paperwork that that oh, put him on geez. notice that he's got it, yeah. which is, you know, yeah. I, I think that's always a bit nuts. Yeah. And then four, that Dr. Akula, as the owner, was the one who financially benefited from submitting these improper claims instead of claims for, for respite care. Um, that evidence is not all that strong as far as federal criminal cases go. Part of Part of what the government needed to prove was intent to defraud. That's like a, you know, a, a bad or evil mindset. I don't see evil in that evidence necessarily. A, a lot of that is like should have known evidence, which is not enough in a, in a criminal trial. What's interesting is the government filed a pleading in December that addresses that intention to fraud problem. And their position is pretty unusual. The prosecutors say that the nature of the scheme is, quote, not a fraud that could have been committed accidentally or negligently, unquote. Mm. I'll be honest. I don't love that argument from the justice department. I, um, CPT codes are, are really hard, Meg, and people get CPT codes wrong all the time on accident or through negligence, sometimes intentionally, you know, intentionally is, is fraud, but accidental or negligent doesn't mean fraud. So to me, that's just a bad argument by, by the justice department. Um, In addition to the CPT codes can't be accidental or negligent argument, the prosecutors pointed to witness testimony that billing for inpatient care is unusual in hospice. But that doesn't mm-hmm. remotely say that Dr. Akula, you know, knew that it was wrong. That just means that it's like objectively wrong for for people in the industry if you had that that knowledge. So the evidence, at least from my limited vantage point, doesn't appear to be all that strong relative to what I'm used to seeing in criminal healthcare fraud cases. Mm-hmm. But the jury still unanimously convicted um Dr. Akula of healthcare fraud. It did so rather quickly. Um yeah. Under two hours of deliberation, which is which is quick. Uh and I'm not saying that it's the wrong decision. Um, just that the evidence was not overwhelming to to me. Knowledge from that audit was was probably a big deal. Control of billing was probably a big deal, profit definitely a big deal to the jury. Um, a lot of juries are going to vote to convict based with, with just those three. And it did here. Uh, so now he'll be sent sometime later this year um, once the you know court does all the full report on the conduct and the factors and, and everything. Uh, but it'll be a, a long process for, for that.
0: Wow. See, this is why you're a defense attorney now. It's <laughs> it just like when, you know, and I'm not a criminal defense lawyer, but it's like, oh, geez, someone's got you recording. I mean, who knows what? My guess is, if you're trying to record someone, and get them to admit something. You have to. There needs to be some subtlety, so someone doesn't think that they're they're being recorded. And so, mm-hmm. but but I, I mean, I, I I do think like this. Just well, I think a lot of things. I think your point about the, um, you know, the medical review and they had a hundred percent error rate. Now this is you know, different circumstances, but so often um, people have high error rates and then you go through the appeal process and then you get everything overturned. And so my guess is they weren't appealing these claim denials or whatever. You just sort of took it and went away, you know, and went on doing whatever. But I, I just think that, you know, all of us have a lot of concern where you look at the beginning of the story and then you don't see like, well, did any of that stuff get upheld? Again, I'm sure here they just sort of took their lumps and then, as you said, just kept on doing whatever they were doing, as opposed to, you know, oh, look at, I proved the government wrong and got all these denials overturned. Just so, you know, listeners aren't thinking like, oh, geez, I had a really high error rate in some TPE or even a UPIC. I mean, that the government, from a, you know, criminal fraud perspective, Isn't just looking like, oh, you had a bad TPE result. You know, they're also, that's not going to necessarily get you in the fraud realm. I mean, here, my guess is it was really high. You never contested it, right? And so when we work with clients, it's always very important to do at least a first round defense on things. So it doesn't look like an admission that you agree with denials. Sometimes the cost benefit isn't there from a money standpoint. I mean, here it was probably worth a fair amount of money. But, you know, if it's certain claims are denied, I mean, hiring lawyers and doing all this stuff and going through a four level appeal process costs a lot of money. And so some people will be like, I'm not going to keep throwing money after this. I'll just sort of move on. But I, I think, it, you know, always a good reminder that. You know, the government's going to look at that error rate and you want to be able to say, at a minimum, you went on the record about why you disagreed with stuff, as opposed to just because doing nothing makes it seem like I agree. And this is an admission that that this isn't right.
1: Yeah. And that's the big takeaway, Maggie, is is you got to take audits seriously. I mean, one of the hardest jobs of, uh, that a federal prosecutor has is to show what a defendant thought in a given moment. That audit in 2014 effectively put Dr. Akula on notice that he had done something wrong. And by just plugging away, billing away as though nothing had happened, he took on a ton of risk that ended up getting him prosecuted. I don't I that that audit to me is sort of critical to showing that he knew what he was doing was wrong. And I don't think he's getting indicted without that audit. So, you know, jurors, oftentimes they're going to reduce things down to simple concepts. And that simple concept is that the audit told him not to do it. And he did it anyway. And $47 million later, you know, that's not a jury's not going to say that that's an okay thing. They're going to do something about it. So um, if your audit comes back with a hundred percent failure rate, you got to either exactly what you said, Meg, you got to either contest it, you got to make some changes, but continuing on as if nothing had (laughs) happened, that's just a bad idea.
0: Oh, it's just a costume business. Mm-hmm. No, I'll just keep keep you know plugging along. Um, but but I do think in the audit activity is so um, fast and furious right now. It is really important to you know put your best foot forward and and not just say well. And I would think most people are not doing this. Um, at least folks that we work with like well, you know, I guess I'll just change things going forward. And it's like, yeah, but you still want to get on the record that you disagree with this. And there's a reasonable basis for why you did what you did and what you thought you were doing. Right. When you submitted this claim, you thought it was billable. Well, why? Mm -hmm. Right. Like you have documentation to support that. And as we all know, um, you know, the clinical decision making for hospice is uh, you know, inexact, right? I mean, GIP is also a somewhat fuzzy standard, right? Like, could this be managed at the home? Well, maybe it depends on, you know, what resources you have. and I mean, there's a lot that goes into, you know, these different things. And so, um, I think if you're billing something, most people have a basis, right? The physician ordered that level of care, right? They thought it was medically necessary. And then they're reviewing it, you know, on a daily basis, most people. And so um, I think you're you're right. And it's a reminder that not like this is going to be the end result for people who get a bad audit, they're going to get criminally, you know, criminally indicted. But I, I just think, you know, bringing it back to what a lot of people are dealing with is audits and taking them seriously because they can be used in evidence and probably criminal or civil fraud. And so we know that 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 is actually happening. But geez, this is just like intrigue and all of this. It's so mundane now when you're on this side of the fence, right? Like, oh, this is just... I can't even imagine when it's like working for the government. You, you know, <laughs> all the things you see.
1: Yeah, it's exciting on this side too, for uh, sure. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, for sure. yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. fewer recorded it, phone calls. Yeah, yeah. it's
0: mm-hmm. just so so fascinating um, when you talk to you know former government lawyers because you know folks are always so worried like something horrible is going to happen to them, and then you're like. People just don't have perspective of the things that, you know, people are doing out there are, you know, not what people are who are calling me worried about something. It's like that this is not what is going to get you in jail or any, mm-hmm. you know, no one is. Um, so I just think you see a whole different side of life when you're working at the government of, of strange behavior. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So, well, Fascinating case, and um, I guess it will, as you said, take a while to figure out if there's any money left at the end, <laughs> and uh, what kind of sentence. But I would expect something fairly hefty.
1: Yes. So the the loss amount is what largely drives federal sentences in fraud cases, and when you're when you're up in the forty million dollar range, that you're yeah, you can expect a large a large sentence. Yeah.
0: Hmm. Not a happy ending, there. Not at all for, for Dr. Okula, at least. Anyway, well, well, thanks for for this exciting pitch on a screenplay <laughs> that just happens to be real, right? That's exactly um, right. So, but anyway, well, thanks as always for for lending your expertise, and um, it's just so great to have you as part of our team.
1: Thanks, Meg. I appreciate uh, appreciate you letting me on your team.
0: Well, that's it for today's episode of Hospice Insights, The Law and Beyond. Thank you for joining the conversation. To subscribe to our podcast, visit our website at hushblackwell.com or sign up wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, may the wind be at your back.